Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, we tackle the topic of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. This is a condition that is projected to directly impact 50 million Americans. And anyone who has experienced it or been around it knows that it can be just devastating in virtually every aspect. This disease is said to steal your soul along with your memory ability to learn and capacity to take basic care of yourself. There is nobody in the world more qualified to speak on this subject than today's guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is an Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease researcher and the foremost authority on the reversal of cognitive decline for those experiencing Alzheimer's symptoms. When Dr. Bredesen received his undergraduate degree from Caltech, and his medical degree from Duke University. He served as chief resident in neurology at UCSF and as a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Nobel laureate Professor Stanley Prusner. In 1998, he became the founding president and CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, and in 2013, he came to UCLA as director of the Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research and he is currently a professor. Having spent his career on the forefront of research into the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases, Dr. Bredesen and his team at the Bredesen Lab have discovered effective therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease. And these discoveries have led to the publication of over 200 research papers, as well as the development of the Bredesen Protocol. He's the author of numerous authoritative books, on cognitive decline, including The End of Alzheimer's, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline, and The End of Alzheimer's program. Now, the timing for this conversation was fortuitous, as the FDA just approved a new Alzheimer's drug called Lakembi, and Dr. Bredesen shares his thoughts on the efficacy of this new pharmaceutical and we discuss the amyloid hypothesis and dive deeper to examine the root causes of dementia. And Dr. Bredesen reveals that the production of amyloid plaques in the brain are initially an adaptive protective mechanism. Now we talk about the genes that can predispose you to dementia, and we look at many of the lifestyle factors that contribute to the slow progressive onset of cognitive decline. We talk about inflammation in the brain, dementia as a metabolic disease, and the neurotoxin villains that play a role in synaptic degradation. But there's good news here. Dr. Bredesen's protocols have not only prevented cognitive decline, they have reversed the Alzheimer's symptoms in thousands of patients. And this is beyond what anyone ever thought was possible. Dr. Bredesen shares many of these protocols in our conversation. A side note, this disease is progressive. You don't just wake up one day with Alzheimer's. So even if you're in your 20s and your 30s, you need to care about and care for your brain. Okay, before we dive in, if you're interested in courses in integrative medicine from many of the doctors that we discuss in today's show, doctors like Mark Hyman, Jeff Blantz, Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald and others on topics such as longevity, brain health, and metabolism, well, I urge you to head over to the Commune course platform. 
You can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire treasure trove of programs, including more than 130 courses on spiritual, physiological, psychological health. So just go to onecommune.com slash trial. That's T-R-I-A-L. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. makes a huge difference. So thanks. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Dale Bredesen. Okay, Dr. Dale Bredesen, welcome to the Commune Podcast. What a treat. I'm, I'm such an admirer of your work and uh, just so thrilled that you're here. Thank you, Jeff. Great to talk to you. Okay. So I'm excited to dive deep into the nature of Alzheimer's disease, its root causes, uh, some of the current standards of care, um, and obviously we'll, we'll get into your uh, pre-code and recode protocols that can actually prevent and in many cases uh, reverse cognitive impairment, but I'd be remiss. I'd fire myself if I didn't ask you about the newest Alzheimer's drug that's all over the headlines. You don't even have to follow this to, to be reading about it. Yeah. This is, of course, called Lakembi. I think I'm pronouncing it right, which was yeah. uh, approved, I believe, just last Thursday by the FDA. And Medicare, I believe, has agreed to cover 80% of this cost to consumers. So, um, you know, given that there has been very little success over the past 30 years developing effective uh, pharmaceuticals to treat Alzheimer's, I've got to ask you, Dr. Dale Bredesen, is Lakembi any different? Not really. So, you know, it's been called a breakthrough. It is a business breakthrough. It's not a medical mm -hmm. breakthrough. So the, uh, here's the idea, it's, it's, it's actually kind of a, a, this is a 1990s idea that took until the 2020s to, to develop. So the idea back in the 1990s was, aha, amyloid, this stuff that you make in your brain, which actually comes from a larger molecule, it's a little piece of a molecule that's cut out. This stuff must be causing Alzheimer's disease and therefore, let it, let's rip it out of there. Let's just you know, pull it out. And that was a pretty good idea 30 years ago. What has turned out though, is that your brain makes this stuff normally when you have exposure to insults. So mm -hmm. if you are exposed to an infection, for example, herpes simplex from your lip, which can actually get back into your brain, unfortunately. Uh, P. gingivalis, which is a bacterium in your mouth from your oral microbiome, which also can get back into your brain. And any of a number of other chronic infections, toxins, things like various metals. What your brain does is as part of the immune response, it secretes this stuff. And it's amazing stuff, actually. It's a little bit like, um, like when you have a bug in amber. I'm sure you've seen this. You've got mm -hmm. the amber sequestering the insect. This stuff is kind of like amber. It sequesters mm -hmm. these things. And in fact, it is an antimicrobial peptide. So it kills the microbes and sequesters them. And this was shown by uh, Professor Rudy Tanzi and Robert Moyer several years ago from Harvard. 
And so it's a very interesting stuff. And it is your brain's response to these various insults. So when you take it out, it's a little bit like if you got, uh, if you got leprosy, your body also responds to the leprosy organism by making granulomas, another kind of response. And it's like saying, we're gonna give you a drug that sucks out the granulomas. Well, that doesn't do anything for what's actually causing the problem. And mm. that's exactly what's happened here. So here's the, here's the follow-up. Here's what actually has been translated into human results. Number one, this drug does not make anybody better. Number two, it doesn't keep you the same. Number three, what it does is, instead of going downhill like this, you go downhill 27% slower. So there is a minimal effect to slow the decline. And in doing that, number one, there's side effect, brain bleeding. Side effect number two, brain swelling. Side effect number three, three people during the trial died. Uh, and you know the the argument from the pathologist is yes this looks like this is related. Um, so the problem is that simply sucking out of your brain your brain's normal response to these various insults was a good idea 30 years ago, but it has not turned out to be a good idea for the long run. Now let's compare what actually in trials has done better. And Lakemi, as you mentioned, it's all over. Yeah, because the budget is huge. They're going to make hundreds of millions or billions, hundreds of billions of dollars selling mm. this drug. So no surprise, you're going to hear lots of positive things from the PR team. However, let's look at what actually did better than this drug when it was given to people. Number one, ketones. Just giving the brain ketones, and this was done by Professor Stephen Kinane from Canada, has actually gotten better. People actually improved. The second thing, extra virgin olive oil alone has done better than this drug in terms of actually making people better, at least for a period of time. Number three, something which is called combined metabolic activators. So basically it's saying, this is, a, this is a situation where there is low energy in the brain. This actually gets at the problem much more than just ripping out the stuff that your body is responding normally with. Um, and then of course, as you mentioned earlier, Recode. So we developed uh, years ago and first published in 2014, the Recode protocol, which is reversal of cognitive decline. And this is based on 30 years of research that we did in the laboratory. And the idea here is, don't treat something that's a complex chronic illness without asking what caused it. I mean, duh, mm -hmm. right? It's a pretty obvious thing to do. So, uh, you know, let's liken the brain to, for example, to a country. If your country is having all sorts of insults and it's now, uh, you know, it's now fighting on this front and fighting on that front, you, you know, you you may go into a recession. You, you're not, you know, you're 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 putting your resources into fighting. What you want to do to stop that problem is you want to determine what's actually invading you. And then want, you just want to get rid of those things. And then you want to reset to a period of building and strength. And by the way, there's a direct analogy here to what happened to our country during the pandemic. So mm. early 2020, as you'll remember, we were all told what? Shelter in place, socially distance, don't go to work, you know, pull back. And what happened? We went into a recession. 
okay, now you know it's kind of starting to come out of this, and people are getting out there again and doing you know they're building and things are improving once again. Well, your brain does the same thing. So when you are exposed to infections, to toxins, to insulin resistance, to leaky gut to chronic sinusitis, to poor oral microbiome, to sleep apnea, on and on and on, these various insults, your brain says, okay, I've got to go from a mode of building and maintenance to a mode of protection and downsizing, just like what happened mm. in the pandemic. And that's what the amyloid, that's what Alzheimer's is all about. Alzheimer's, as we discovered in the lab, is fundamentally a network insufficiency. So you've got supply, you've got demand, and when you have too much demand because of inflammation, uh, things like that, you get too little supply because of poor blood flow or poor oxygenation or low ketone level, things like that, then you're going to have to go into this protective downsizing mode. So what we want to do is not to rip out the amyloid. We want to determine what caused it? Why is it there? And then we want to get rid of those things. Now, the interesting thing to me is this drug may turn out in the long run to be a good idea at micro doses after you've taken mm. care, you know, after you've now gotten rid of all the invaders. I would love to now use very small doses and slowly help move out. And by the way, you can also do that with things like curcumin. You can slowly remove this amyloid. So there's a there's a way to do it at the right time in the right place without all these problems, brain bleeding, et cetera. And one of the things this stuff does is actually to patch damage to blood vessels. So you can imagine ripping this stuff out. It's like ripping off a, a patch on your tire. Um, it, it's not going to go well. So it's it's again, it's it's a misguided approach to treating this disease. And the reality is, this is Alzheimer's is now optional. Virtually mm. nobody needs to get this if you simply get on active prevention or earliest treatment. So we recommend everybody 40 years of age or older, please get a cognoscopy, just like uh, you know, we all get colonoscopies when we turn 50. Mm -hmm. And actually, my, my wife and I got his and hers colonoscopies on Valentine's Day just to get it over with. <laughs> And that's, so that's you very go, romantic, very romantic, <laughs> just get it out of the way, you know, so you don't have to worry yeah. about it. And so you everyone should get a cognoscopy if they're 40 or older. And that's some basic things, some blood tests that your doctor is probably not going to do. Make sure you get those. It's a, a simple, free online cognitive assessments called CQ, which you can get online right now and get a free CQ test and see where you stand. And then it's if you've got symptoms, you also want to include an MRI. I also read that Lekempi seems to be contraindicated with people that have a presentation of the APOE4 allele, which is, of course, the people that are most susceptible yeah. to getting Alzheimer's. Um, so that is a head scratcher for me uh as well and and maybe you could just address that for the people that are not familiar with um what kind of might load the gun from a kind of genetic predisposition perspective 
um, in relation to the APO4 uh, allele. What, what is that and yeah. uh, to what degree can that, is that a risk factor for the development of, of AD? This is such a fascinating story because it is a gene that appeared with the dawn of humans, so hominids really. So five to seven million years ago, of course, the first hominids appeared from the simians and the simians have a different ApoE. This is apolipoprotein E. It's a protein that carries around fats. So it's a little bit like your butcher. It's the, it's the guy that carries around the fat. And you know, why would it be that this guy has anything to do with your cognition? And so we actually found in the lab a really interesting story that this stuff is also like your senator. It makes the laws of the land. So it actually enters your ApoE actually enters your cell, goes into your nucleus, and it changes 1,700 different genes. So it's literally reprogramming. Now, so this, this gene, ApoE, there are three different varieties that are the common ones, so-called alleles. And by the way, the very first one was ApoE4, the one that is the risk for Alzheimer's. That's the one mm. that was present five to seven million years ago. And from, for 96% of our evolution as hominids, we've all been ApoE44, which now represents only wow. about 2% of the population. Then just 220,000 years ago, uh, ApoE3 appeared, which is now the common one. So for example, I checked myself, I'm a 3-3, which is the most common. And then just 80,000 years ago, ApoE2 appeared. So here's the risk. There are about 100 different genes that confer some degree of risk or, or prevention in Alzheimer's. But the most common one is just what you said, ApoE4. And so three quarters of our population is ApoE4 negative. Our risk is about 9% through our lifetime. Not zero, but not too high. 75 million Americans have a single copy. As you mentioned, that's the, you know, very, very common, and it's often the, the association with Alzheimer's disease. And then their risk lifetime is about 30%. And then, 2% two, uh, 2%, which is about 7 million Americans, have two copies, as you mentioned. Um, these are the ones that are at high risk for leukemia and shouldn't be taking it. Uh, those people uh, have, a, uh, ha have a risk that's about 70%. In other words, mo most likely they will develop Alzheimer's. And it's mm. been said in the past, don't bother to check because there's nothing you could do about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody should check. Just like you should know your cholesterol and know your blood pressure, you should know your APOE status. Don't worry if you come up with one or two copies. Don't worry. You'll get on active prevention. You should not have a problem. There's a wonderful website that was actually started by an amazing lady who is a 4-4 herself and actually began to have symptoms in her late 40s. And her name is Julie G. And she started a website called apoe4.info mm. and they have over 7,000 people on that site, uh, most of whom, by the way, are on some version of the protocol that we developed um, and preventing their own decline and doing very well. And she actually went from 35th percentile on her testing when she was clearly having symptoms 
to 98th percentile. Um, she's doing beautifully. And she's now over 11 years doing this and doing very, very well. So yeah. just uh, amazing. In fact, uh, helped uh, wrote part of the second book that I wrote. Uh, wanted to do a, a lot of practical information. So she's a daily user and wrote about her experiences. Uh, and also the third book, which is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Um, she is one of the seven who wrote their stories. Just amazing stories. I, you know, I dare anyone to read that book, read these stories of these amazing people who were told that they were going to die and then got right. better. Um, and not, uh, you know, and, and not have a tear in your eye because these are amazing stories <laughs> from these people. So, so that's the APOE4 story, and it is an amazing one. What it's really telling us is, it tells us a little bit about what Alzheimer's really is. Again, as I mentioned, it's a network insufficiency. But when you get exposed to these various insults, there are people who respond. It's, it, it's a little bit like. You know, if you hear a sound at your door and you think there might be a there might be a burglar here, there are some people that'll just make sure the door's locked. There are some people will call the cops and there are some people that'll get a shotgun and blast the person, even if it turns out to be a Girl Scout selling cookies. So the point is, if you have APOE4, you are a hyper responder. Right. So what's mm. happening is you're very good. And in fact, Professor Tuck Finch from USC pointed out that APOE4 helped us as hominids to come down out of the trees, to walk across the mm. savanna, to puncture our feet, to fight with our brethren, to fight with our food. During this time, what happens? We get cuts and scrapes. We're getting infected. We're eating meat that's, of course, back then uncooked, full of microbes. So what helped us? to go from simians to hominids was to have this brisk inflammatory response. Now, interestingly, as you know, that after we had this for millions of years, we now start evolving into creatures who have not quite as brisk of an immune response. And so if you're living in a third world country where you're exposed to all this stuff all the time, it actually helps you to be APOE4 positive. But mm -hmm. if you're living in a first world country, then having these overly brisk responses increases your risk for heart attacks, increases your risk for strokes, it reduces your, your longevity just slightly, um, but it increases your risk for Alzheimer's. So the good news is we can prevent all of those by recognizing that it's this brisk response that's actually hurting you. So again, it comes back to the fact that the amyloid of Alzheimer's is not there to give you Alzheimer's. It's there to give you a brisk inflammatory response to fight the various things that you're exposed to from you know, bad dentition to chronic sinusitis, to Lyme disease, to leaky gut, to exposure to metals. What we really wanna do is let's remove those exposures, let's optimize your immune system and optimize your energetics. Those are the two big ones that give you risk for Alzheimer's, energetics and immune system. And you're gonna do great. And you, your body will not have a problem then with having APOE, whether it's a single copy or whether it's two copies. Hmm. That is fascinating. So you just outlined a big swath of evolutionary biology of um, certain mutations 
appearing in the human genome over very, very long periods of time. So I like to generally categorize evolution as very slow. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned that, you know, APOE4 um, and the development of or the production of, of beta amyloid in the, in the brain is actually a protective adaptive mechanism that is the product of evolutionary brilliance. Yes. But my guess would be that in the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've seen cresting rates of Alzheimer's disease. Is, is that a fair assumption? That is actually epidemiologically proven. So it's really interesting. When I was training, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now 71, I'm, a, I'm an old guy. When I was training in neurology way back in the 80s and training in medicine way back in the 70s, we never saw people who were in their 40s or 50s who were getting Alzheimer's. We thought of it as a disease, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that sort of thing. Now, one of the most common things we see is a person often early 50s who is developing Alzheimer's disease. And at, you know, at first I asked some of my colleagues, you know, wait, what, what's going on here? What, you know, what, did we see this back? Am I, am I forgetting something? And then a couple of fascinating papers came out from epidemiologists who showed that if you look at the Alzheimer's incidence, and then you look at 40s people, 50s, where you're seeing this dramatic increase is in the 40s and 50s less increase in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then complementing that, people started looking at, well, when do these changes actually begin? We know you end up with dementia, but how far back can we trace this? And so they did beautiful longitudinal studies using PET scans and using spinal fluid. And what they found was kind of scary, that you begin these changes about 20 years before a diagnosis. Now, the great news for us is this means we can get at it, we can prevent it, we can reverse it early on. Please don't wait. And the latest thing that's happened here is there, there are now, for the first time, blood tests that you can do to see if you're headed in the wrong direction. Now, we talked about the ApoE4, but that's just your risk. I'm talking about actual changes in your synapses in your brain. So we're getting to a point, again, as I said earlier, Alzheimer's is now optional. Please get on, check, check where you stand, get your cognoscopy if you're 40 or older. We can pretty much make sure that you'll never have this problem. And so what happens is you now go through, it turns out, four phases. And the big problem, of course, is people always wait till that final phase. You know, we hear this all mm -hmm. the time. It's so sad. The next celebrity who's come down with Alzheimer's and has just, you know, waited years and years and years until they just can't do anything. But there are these three stages before that. So the first stage is you are asymptomatic. You can begin to see changes. And this disease that we used to think of as a disease of old age is really a disease of your 30s, 40s, and 50s that's getting picked up and diagnosed 20 years later. We'll be able, now, now we're able to change that. So the first phase, you go through your asymptomatic. You don't know that you're starting to make this amyloid. Yeah, you're, you're being exposed to these various pathogens. You've had a standard American diet. You've lived in a moldy home with mycotoxins. You've gotten exposed to too many heavy metals, so forth and so on. Your body does a great job of keeping that at bay for a while. 
The second phase is called subjective cognitive impairment, SCI. Mm -hmm. And that's to me, for anyone who doesn't get on prevention, everyone should get should do SCI, well, during their SCI phase, um, then get on then because we can reverse 100% of those people. This is a mild form and at the time. So the definition of SCI is, you know there's something wrong. Maybe you're not remembering phone numbers the way you used to. Maybe you're not, the, things are a little harder at work. So maybe you're forgetting names. But when you do cognitive testing, you're still able to score within the normal range. Now, important to point out, for a lot of people, well, okay, they're smart. So they're going to be able to score for a, for a fairly long time. And we had an amazing example of this a few years ago. A guy who was the math champion of his state when he was a kid and later became a wildly successful hedge fund manager, clearly had problems and was actually fairly late. He was all the way into the fourth stage, but he went in, he had been a genius, and he scored in the 50th percentile. So the neuropsychologist said to his wife, oh, everything's fine, he's still scoring normally. She said, are you out of your mind? He is a you know, shadow mm. of what he used to be. So mm. some of this is just our testing frailty, right? Uh, so yeah, the bottom yeah. line though is, by definition, we call that SCI. And so this is why I say, please get on active prevention. Everyone in those first two stages, we have great success. Now, the third stage is MCI, mild cognitive impairment. Now, it's unfortunate that people chose to call this MCI, mild cognitive impairment. It's like telling someone, don't worry, Jeff, you only have mildly metastatic cancer. It's a relatively late yeah. stage of Alzheimer's, and I wish they would call it that, relatively late stage Alzheimer's. The good news is, in our trial, 84% of those people actually got better. Now, what's happened with the drug world is there was pretty much uniform failure in people who had the fourth stage. The fourth stage is dementia. The fourth stage is where now, by definition, you're losing your activities of daily living. So with MCI, you're scoring abnormally, but you can still care for yourself. You can still drive. You can still balance your checkbook, stuff like that. With the fourth stage, de dementia, you're starting to have trouble with those. And ultimately, as you know, you can't take care of, for, of yourself at all. And so the drugs failed with this fourth stage. So they said, okay, let's lower the bar. Let's move them to the MCI phase. Well, the MCI phase, um, you know, we can do things with that. And that's why I mentioned testing MCI, extra virgin olive oil, better sleep. I mean, all these things, ketones uh, do well. With Lakembi, it doesn't make you better. But again, it, it slowed the decline in that MCI stage. And they did go into mm -hmm. early dementia, as our trial did as well. So, you know, ours went up, ours went down less. Yeah, so it seems like the headline there is that you don't just suddenly wake up one day with stage four or full-blown right. yes. um, Alzheimer's dementia, um, th that this is a, a disease that is progressive in nature. And the good news there is that we have tremendous agency um, yes. over then prevention. And early reversal. Back to this notion of this 
of the cresting rates of Alzheimer's and, you know, seeing the prevalence uh, of it in, in age groups that are younger and younger. Um, I mean, our biology, our underlying DNA nucleotide sequences haven't changed much in the last 40 or 50 years, right? Evolution is very, very slow, Mm -hmm. but now we're seeing the efflorescence of this disease and other chronic diseases. That seems to suggest to me that there is some kind of lifestyle-inducing component to this disease that that Alzheimer's is in some way a product, or it's not really a product, it's a process, but let's just say it is an artifact of culture in some fashion. And I wonder if you can put your thumb on the biggest contributors there from a lifestyle perspective that it seems to be fueling um, these cresting rates of the disease. This is such a great point. You know, when I was on the National Aging Council years ago, the, the, the a very interesting uh, paper came out showing that in the UK, people get their first chronic illness on average in their 50s. But in the Mm. U.S., we get our first chronic illness in our 40s, almost a decade sooner than the U.K. population. And I asked the guy who'd done the study, I mean, do you think this is from drive-throughs? You know, what what is this? He said, (laughs) we just do not know yet. But even in England, where we don't think of U.K. as being uh, a place like Okinawa, where you have tremendous longevity. Um, it's yeah, right. you know, UK is by no means a blue zone. So why <laughs> the heck is this going on? And so the answer is, it's not clear yet, but there are lots of really good guesses. And one of them comes from the change in the way we live. So if, and if you've read Metabolical, which is a, a book I strongly recommend from my, my friend and colleague, <laughs> Rob Lustig, a professor uh, over at UCSF for many years, um, as he points out, you know, look what's happened to our food sourcing and looks what's happened to our food. The processed food is a huge issue. And, I, and unfortunately, you know, we're always told, oh, come on, it's just food. It is a major problem and it is giving us insulin resistance. We've got over 100 million Americans with insulin resistance. It's giving us metabolic mm-hmm. syndrome. Um, and this is something I see so commonly, and it has been proven to be a strong risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Um, so you're talking about you know three to five times as likely to get Alzheimer's if you have metabolic syndrome. Look what's happened to the to the increase in tremendous rates of uh, of NASH of this non-alcoholic liver disease, so-called NAFLD. Yeah. Uh, the fatty liver disease associated with processed foods. Um, And so this is all uh, probably the biggest player is the change. And this has really been, you know, as we know, it's really been since the 70s um, that these various things have been introduced. And of course, there was the low fat craze Um, that hasn't helped. And then I I actually think one of the uh, biggest damaging events was the professor at Harvard who was paid off years ago to say that sugar is not a problem, it's really about fat. Um, and this mm-hmm. goes back, you know, about 50 years. And, and, and you know, th- this is really unfortunate. And this, this guy and this claim did more to harm uh, our medical system and our health than most of the things that you can name. 
Um, my guess is in the long run, it will do, have done far more to kill people than the pandemic. And by the way, I should give you one important figure. The pandemic has killed over a million Americans. Alzheimer's will kill about 45 million of the currently living Americans. It is, by the way, it's now oh the number one cause of death in the UK. So is that this right? is a common problem. And, and I do believe that this idea that sugar was fine for you um, and you're just throwing it. You remember the book Salt, Sugar and Fat. Um, you know, if you want to make your food more tasty and have more people buy it and make more billions of dollars, then you put in salt, sugar or fat. And so you know, that has been a huge issue. And then I would add another thing that's very interesting. And you may have talked to Professor Rick Johnson from University of Colorado. So Rick mm -hmm. has spent years working on the whole area of uh, fructose metabolism and ultimately its right. link to uric acid. Um, as Dave Perlmutter has written that nice book, uh, Drop Acid, uh, and, and it's linked to salt intake as well. And so um, Rick, David, and I published a paper recently along with several other people, but it's really based on Rick's beautiful uh, research over the years. And what he showed is fascinating, that fructose, again, we go back to evolution. Fructose, right. you, it's coming to be fall. The fruit is everywhere. So people, so people, basically hibernating species like bears, would go out and eat, you know, 200 pieces of fruit, massive fructose intakes. And again, this is not fine to have some some fruit. You don't want to just go crazy and take this fructose. So okay, now you're going to get high fructose corn syrup in your coke, and you're going to kill your brain. So what fructose does is it signals to your body, it is time for winter to come so that you've got to now reduce your energetic support so that you can store fat. That's the way to give yourself Alzheimer's disease. Because again, Alzheimer's is about, do you have enough energy and is your demand due to inflammation and toxins too high? Those are the two big players. So you want to yeah. give yourself Alzheimer's, take a bunch of fructose, you'll drop your energy. It drops about 15% or so. You'll start storing fat. Your adipokines will be inflammatory. So now you've done everything possible. And what he showed was really interesting, that if you just go down the list, like what does fructose do to your PET scan? What does Alzheimer's do to your PET scan? There's this beautiful concordance hmm. right down the list. Now, I don't believe that fructose is the only, by any means, is the only cause but I believe that it is a common contributor. So we've identified dozens of contributors, but they all have the same thing in common. They impact your energetics to your brain and or impacting the inflammatory status. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, Rick's book, um, I believe the title is Nature Wants Us to, to be Fat. fat. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and what I think this points to, when he means He's talking about evolution, really, when he's talking about nature in this particular case. And what he's really pointing to is that we used to live with balance between abundance and scarcity. Yeah. So the body's ability to store triglycerides as, as, as energy storage was actually an adaptive advantage because the body knew that winter was coming and that yep. scarcity would be here and we would need these energy reserves. Yeah. But the problem, once again, is that culture 
has hijacked evolution and we don't experience any scarcity anymore, yes. at least in most of the world. I'm not trying to say that there's no food scarcity everywhere. Um, but in most of the Western world, what we have is a problem of overnutrition. So we just keep storing fat and keep storing. And then, of course, we build up excess adipose tissue. And you say, as you say, these adipokines are highly inflammatory. Uh, and, and that can lead to all sorts of these, you know, downstream diagnoses around chronic disease. Right. And isn't um, this interesting that we are dying very commonly with Alzheimer's disease, which is a, an insufficiency due to excess, which is the paradox. Yes. So we've got right. this, we're taking this in over the years, but we're damaging the blood flow to our brains. And so, mm -hmm. and we're, we're getting too much inflammation. So we're dying of, a, of an insufficiency that is born of excess. Yeah. You know, one thing that you do that I found super interesting, um, and I'd love if you could clarify it for me, um, is that it seems like Alzheimer's is a disease diagnosis that gets sort of thrust over yeah. um, a representation of, of symptoms. Um, but there seems to also be a variety of different etiologies that can lead to Alzheimer's. So, you know, you mentioned inflammation. There also seems to be uh, a root cause related to glucose metabolism dysfunction So and, yes. and, and insulin resistance. And then you also, um, of course, mentioned toxins. So, yeah. you know, I wonder maybe you could specifically talk about What's happening from a metabolic dysfunction perspective, yeah. like with our neurons in our hippocampus, for example, that become insulin resistant? What's going on there as it relates to Alzheimer's? Yeah, it's a great point. So there are many ways, as you just indicated, to get to this phenomenon where your supply is being exceeded by your demand, where your energy is too low. Uh, and or your demand is too high, your inflammation, toxins, and things like that, too high. And so, yes, um, you're you're essentially as you get. So let's look at take a take a neuron, take a cell, and let's stick a receptor in there. So you have mm -hmm. here's your insulin receptor, and you're it's seeing insulin. Now you're going to take all this you know, heavy, simple carbs. You're going to ramp up, and now you've suddenly flooded the system with this with these things that are toxic and you know that's the problem glucose and fructose are actually toxic to you um, and so you're it's a little bit like running a little bit like you know you running your nuclear submarine um, yeah great for energy you got to be careful um, you get radiation you're going to die and unfortunately, sugar gives you some radiation there. It, so you, you glycate, as you know, you glycate your protein. So what happens, you push out this insulin and we see people, you know, your insulin should typically be about four, four and a half, five, you know, in that range. And maybe if you're in good shape, it may even be two or three. Well, while your hemoglobin A1C is sitting down at 4.8 or 4.9, that's you know good glycemic control. But for many of us, this has been pushed out. So now we're seeing, we see people with fasting insulins of 20 and 30 uh, and even higher. It's amazing. So what happens now, a couple things all happen at once. Number one, this insulin 
when you signal through the insulin receptor, and by the way, it, it doubles as a trophic factor for these neurons. So right. it comes back to right what you were saying. And downstream from this, there is a molecule. When you go inside the cell, you're now converting this signal to a, through a molecule called IRS1. And so uh, this is an insulin receptor signaling molecule. This thing can be adjusted. You know, so you can turn up. It's just like you turn up and down your volume. If, you know, if I'm speaking too loud, you can turn down your volume. If I'm speaking too soft, you can turn it up. So this thing gets phosphorylated. Now, when things are good, you're signaling normally, it gets phosphorylated at tyrosine residues, and it's giving the thing, okay, live, things are good, signal. When it's overwhelmed, it says, oh my God, I got to put on headphones. I got, I got to keep this down. I got to turn down the volume. And it is then phosphorylated at serine and threonine. And what's been shown is that this serine-threonine phosphorylation is high in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So you've mm. had this insulin resistance. So it's literally, you've turned this down. Now, what happens, you know, if you now are chronically wearing earmuffs, and now instead of your, you know, your 14-year-old son who's banging on the drums all the time, your wife comes home and puts on a, just a normal Brahms lullaby. You don't hear it. You do right. not respond. And when we used to grow neurons in, the, in a Petri dish in the lab, you always have to include insulin because to keep them surviving. So now you're mm -hmm. turning down a signal that's critical. And by the way, there's another interesting another interesting phenomenon that, that contributes to this. Once you've made all this insulin, you know, you don't want to get hypoglycemic, right? So now you've got to break down the insulin. And there are several mechanisms to do that. But one of them is called IDE, insulin degrading enzyme. Well, guess what IDE also does? It degrades amyloid. So mm. if you are now chronically trying to get this huge amount of insulin degraded, you're not going to be able to look at your amyloid, which is now slowly accumulating. So you're going to now again have this over response to these various insults. So it's amazing. The, the, the system works so beautifully. And, you know, I, I do just want to mention one of my real heroes is, is Jeff Bland, because many people don't realize he has, you know, starting 25, 30 years ago um, as a biochemist himself, really changed the way that that doctors think about medicine. And unfortunately, it has not been picked up by mainstream medicine yet. This is a fundamentally different way to think about health and to think about medicine. And it's what's leading to treatments for Alzheimer's and treatments for lupus and treatments for rheumatoid arthritis and treatments for heart failure and kidney failure and just go on and on. All of these complex chronic illnesses, which is the thing that's killing almost all of us today, these don't respond well to the old-fashioned medicine from the 20th century where you write a prescription. And yeah. so this is a fundamental change that needs to be taught in medical schools and needs to be practiced by everyone who is seeing complex chronic illness patients. Even, I would get even oh, yeah. to things like hypertension. The goal is to understand why did you get hypertension and then let's fix that. So this is how, going back to your question, this is what's actually happening in the neurons. They are seeing a change in signals because of what we have forced on them. 
And this goes back to the fact that, as you, uh, you alluded to earlier, these diseases are about a mismatch between our genetics and our living. And that's true also just for living inside houses. We have built our houses out of mold food, unfortunately. Mm. And so the yeah. more you can get outdoors, the better. Now, to be fair, you know, you get outdoors and if you're in a place that's got smog, okay, that's a problem too. And there's actually very nice studies showing that smog and air pollution increases risk for Alzheimer's disease. And again, not surprising, it's part of the same equation here. So living an appropriate lifestyle for our evolution is so beneficial. I think I saw a statistic recently that demonstrated that we spend only 6% of our time outdoors. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah and that's certainly we, more like 60. We need, yeah, we need yeah. to, of course, reimmerse ourselves into the natural world. I mean, as you point out, you know, this kind of one size fits all approach right. towards treating symptoms is just not working. Right. I mean, um, it, you know, I mean, Alzheimer's is probably the most glaring example, like how, how many years and how many dollars have we yep. poured into it and what have we seen, um, you know, one drug that barely slows down cognitive decline. So, yeah. um, so what this points to though, is something that's very optimistic. And again, it's the good news, which is that we do have a tremendous amount of agency. And, yep. and so instead of looking at just the amyloid hypothesis, you, for example, have outlined, um, I think it's like 36 different uh, metrics, or I think what you called holes in the roof, yeah. um, that are the potential areas of, of provenance for dementia. So what are some of the primary holes in the roof um, that we need to patch if we're really looking to prevent the onset of, of cognitive decline. Yeah, this is an excellent point. Um, and if you look at, you know, what are, what are we doing? What's actually giving us this problem? Then mm -hmm. the common things are insulin resistance um, and metabolic syndrome. That is a big one, and that affects many, many people. As I say, you know, over 80 million Americans with metabolic syndrome. Um, you can see it with you know liver changes and things like that, and unfortunately dementia. Um, as again, as Rob Lustig pointed out in his book, one of the common things. The second thing that I see frequently is um, unfortunately um, sleep apnea. Uh, so people who mm. are dropping their oxygenation, and by the way, this brings up the fact that wearables are going to help us out of chronic illness because they can tell us ahead of time. And again, this is. You know, when I learned years and years ago, the idea was that you symptoms, they come into your clinic, you know, you fix them. Now it's the other way around. You start the disease process and the symptoms come on much later. And we know that's true for Alzheimer's. We know it's true for hypertension. We know basically all of these chronic illnesses, the symptoms come very late. Therefore, we want to look early 
you know, that's why you go in and get, you know, get checked up. And of course, the, you know, the insurance companies have said, you know, we don't want to pay for physicals. Well, in fact, that's the most important thing is for people to get uh, prevention. And as I said, the wearable is probably the best way. And it gives you tremendous control, just what you were talking about. So, you know, I like my Apple Watch. You, you like your Aura Ring, it looks like, whatever. Yeah. yeah, and my daughter likes her Aura Ring. All of these things. Uh, are are so helpful because you can check each day and you can see these things coming. That's the same again with Alzheimer's. You can see it coming if you just bother to look. And so what can we check now? My gosh, you can check on your own. You know, you can get your telomere length checked. You can check your mm-hmm. microbiome. You can check your your uh, heart rate variability. You can check your nocturnal oxygenation. And by the way, wonderful paper a few years ago showing just your average SpO2. So how saturated your oxygen is while you're sleeping at night goes directly with the size of your hippocampus. As you go down, mm-hmm. your hippocampal volume goes down. So they, you know, again, this is only correlation, yeah. but it's a very but it makes important. Sense. It makes a it lot makes of sense, sense. Right? Yeah. and it's something we can deal uh, with. So that's another common one. Uh, poor uh, dentition, oral microbiome, another common one. Leaky gut, another common mm-hmm. one. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we we uh, de- de- we, we develop subtypes based on when we looked at all these different parameters. Then we see inflammatory Alzheimer's, we see atrophic Alzheimer's, we see toxic, glycotoxic, vascular, and traumatic. Those are the major groups, but they all come back mm-hmm. to the same thing: that the energetics are too low, or the inflammation is too high, or both. Um, and then another very common one is people not realizing that they are living in a toxic environment. I was shocked when we first realized this uh, almost a decade ago because I had not been taught that as a neurologist. Um, the, the toxins we talked about were like, you know, massive mercury exposure, things like that. Yeah, okay, that's, that's yeah. pretty simple. But these mild, long-term exposures, and if you look at what are the toxins that ultimately lead to cognitive decline. It's three groups. Number one, it's the inorganics, things like air pollution and mercury. And by the way, you you give someone mercury, um, you literally get the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. You get the plaques, you get the tangles. It looks like Alzheimer's disease. Number two, organics. And these are glyphosate, toluene, benzene, things like that, formaldehyde, stuff like that. And then third, and perhaps the most common, and the one that has really been surprising and concerning, is biotoxins. And so what happens, you know, again, we live in homes that are often food for mold. If you've got water intrusion, uh, as Dr. Richie Shoemaker taught us all uh, over a decade ago, Um, This is important. And in fact, what happens is these toxins and their associated spores and things like that, various, he showed definitely over a dozen different inflammagens. These are constantly triggering your innate immune system. Well, there we are. We're right back to anything that's a constant trigger of your innate immune system. Now, what confuses Mm -hmm. people is you'll often have two spouses living in a home and one will develop Alzheimer's and the other one won't, but they'll both have exposure. And you can even find the toxins in their urine. So yes, some people handle it better than others, 
But unfortunately, when you've got this hyper response to these things, then you develop, you know, unfortunately, you develop cognitive decline over time. You are again now, you're triggering your brain to say, I'm being invaded, go into a protective downsizing mode. So I would again recommend to everyone, please check your home and also check your urine to see if you have my, if you have mycotoxins in your urine, that's another common one. And then again, you know, our diet is is probably the biggest one of all, and and along with uh, along with exercise. And so we break this down into seven core things, seven basic things that you can do about this, and that is diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and some targeted supplements. If everyone were to do those basics, the vast majority of people will, would never have to worry about Alzheimer's. Now, what would happen is a few people would slip through the cracks. Okay, great. Come in early. Now we're going to do more extensive testing. And now we're going to make sure that you don't develop dementia as well. But that sort of multi-tiered approach is the future to me. And we're, we're actually now in discussions with groups that provide healthcare to, to many people to see, you know, can we really dial this down? It's sad to me that business uh, and financial considerations have gotten in the way of doing the right thing to reduce the yeah. global burden of dementia. If, if everybody would get on these simple things at the beginning, we could really reduce the, the overall uh, prevalence. But the problem is you get the insurance companies saying, well, we're not going to pay for someone 30 years from now. We're, we're paying for someone today. We only care what happens to them while they're on our plan. And then, of course, you've got other people saying, well, we're going to make hundreds of billions of dollars from this drug. And even though right. it doesn't perform very well, we're going to push and push and push until we can get it approved. Um, that's that's sad. We can do far, far better. There really should be, just as there was a global effort to, to eradicate smallpox, there should be a global effort to eradicate Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Well, you're at the tip of that spear. And, and I think as far as the financial focus, uh, I think we tend to be myopic in that regard. But still, we're spending $4 trillion a year in the United States. I think 95, 96% of those dollars are going to the treatment of symptoms of chronic disease. So it's amazing? not really uh, a particularly um, you know, profitable approach uh, financially either, right. kind of when you're looking at it through that lens. Um, I want to just spend a little time on specifically on diet because that is is something that is relatively within our control and that we have agency over so earlier you mentioned exogenous or you mentioned ketones i think you right. were referring to exogenous ketones right um which i find to be very interesting and, and may address some of these kind of um some of the uh, metabolic dysfunction issues, like for example, if we have hyperinsulinemia because of insulin resistance, it's very hard to get into ketosis to, to burn ketones in that state. So then of course, then the brain just lacks a tremendous amount of energy and right. the brain is a relatively greedy little devil as, <laughs> as yeah. it pertains to energy consumption. Absolutely. Um, so, um, so I wonder if you could address 
you know, your protocol, which, uh, you know, the, the KetoFlex mm -hmm. protocol, where we can get and how we can get into ketosis just naturally. Um, yeah. and then where, you know, exogenous ketones might be, uh, might be useful. Yeah. Such a good point. Uh, and, and, and again, fascinating biochemistry. So, yeah. and I should, I, I want to thank, um, the, uh, nutrition for longevity. This is a group that was founded by Walter Longo, um, for essentially doing things that are good for you, uh, for your longevity, for your cardiovascular health, for cancer, uh, and now for Alzheimer's um, with different diets. And so they have now worked with us to come up with a KetoFlex 12-3, which is what we call this, which is an optimal diet for your synapses. Uh, and um, you can now get this directly. Uh, you can literally look at KetoFlex 1-2-3 uh, on your computer and, and pull that up. So it's, it's easy to get it delivered, easy to, to, to get yourself into ketosis. So here's the thing. Your brain, as you indicated, you've got to have one of two energy sources. And in a perfect world, you're going back and forth and you're using both these. One is mm -hmm. glucose, one is ketones. The people that I see who are having problem with cognition have lost both. So when I see mm -hmm. someone with cognitive decline, this is an energetic emergency. They are literally hitting on one or two cylinders. They're not, they've not got the energetics that they need. And the reason for that is they've developed the insulin resistance that I mentioned earlier. And by the way, this is what PET scans show. If the signature of Alzheimer's and pre-Alzheimer's on a PET scan is reduced glucose utilization in the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. There it is. You can actually see it on a scan. And so you've lost that metabolically because you have been flooding the system with fructose or with, or, or with high amounts of simple carbs. Unfortunately, because your body's been responding by putting out more insulin, that prevents you from making ketones. You can't make ketones as long as your insulin is high. And so you've lost both and you're literally just limping along and your brain is now degenerating. So in a perfect world, yes, you would restore insulin sensitivity and you'd restore the ability to make ketones. But because this is an emergency, I always recommend to people, just give some exogenous ketones. After a couple of months, you can get into endogenous ketosis and that's even better. But for a lot of people, they are frail. They don't have the fat to burn or they don't have the time to, to wait. Get them some energy first. And then oh, what we'll do is we'll get you to be insulin sensitive. We're gonna have to put you on a low carb diet. So what we use, which is called KetoFlex 12 slash three, is plant rich, it doesn't have to be all plants. Have some wild, you know, have some wild caught fish, hopefully low mercury fish, just like the smash fish. Uh, have some, uh, you know, have some grass fed beef, have some pastured chicken, great. But it's gonna be plant rich, mildly ketogenic. So you're gonna have high phytonutrients. You're gonna have high fiber. And people underestimate how important uh, you know, prebiotic fiber is uh, the stuff. It, it improves your glycemic uh, response. It improves your lipid profile. It helps you detox. I mean, it's amazing how, of course, it feeds your, your gut microbiome. It's amazing how important that is. And then you want to have 
12 to 16 hours of fasting between finishing your dinner, starting your breakfast or brunch, which is why we call it KetoFlex 12-3. The three is for three hours before you go to bed, you don't want to be eating either because you don't want to be pushing your insulin high while you're sleeping. So right. KetoFlex 12-3 is the approach that has worked best for people who have cognitive decline. Now, some people argue, well, you know, just do a Mediterranean diet. Well, yeah, th that can help, but that doesn't get you to be metabolically flexible as well. And it doesn't get you into that ketosis. We want you to be able to do both. We want you to bring back your ability to use glucose and bring back your ability to make and use ketones. But again, if you're frail, just take some exogenous ketones. It's fine because one way or another, you need to support the energetics of your brain. The other thing, of course, that the diet does, it's anti-inflammatory. So you're now yeah. also dealing with the other half of the equation. You're bringing down that inflammation. Now, to be fair, over time, you need to know what was causing the inflammation. If it's because you've got Lyme disease, you want to treat that. If it's because yeah. you've got some other pathogen, you want to treat that. If it's leaky gut, you want to treat that as well. But you can buy yourself nine to 12 months uh, by just dealing with these basics. So low glycemic, plant focused, I think you say like use meat as a condiment, right? Um, some health, a, a good amount of healthy fats, like you can yes. get in nuts and seeds and avocados and, um, and fatty fish. Um, and, uh, and try to, you know, I, I'm on a 16, eight fasting protocol. Yeah, um, great. I think that's better for people that have an APOE4 presentation. Right. Um, but at least 12 hours and really, it's not that huge of a sacrifice, <laughs> you know, you finish, you know, eating dinner around 7.30, like you say, take three hours. If your bedtime's 10.30, you know, you don't, even if you eat at 7.30 the next morning, you know, that's not a huge sacrifice. It's not that difficult to get into that kind of routine. Um, yeah. But, um, but I, I think this is really, really important. I mean, what you outline um, is really first understanding the source of the insult, getting at that, changing your protocols to address that, then removing and addressing plaques um, and, and addressing amyloid. So I wonder, once you've been able to assess where the source of the problem is, and then you go into that process of actually uh, of removing amyloid, what is the best, does that happen as a natural result of adopting the protocols or is that where there are some therapeutics that come into, um, that come into play? Yeah. So, so that is part of the protocol, but think, you have to think about this in different stages. So to begin with, you want to remove the source. What is driving this to begin with? And it's, and it's multiple things. Yeah. You know, it's your lifestyle and it's your sleep and it's your stress levels. And by the way, what, is what does stress do? It acts very much like saturated fat. It puts your immune system on high alert. So you want to bring that down as well. It's actually quite an important part of this overall. Once you've gotten that to be improved, 
you now also, you want to optimize things. And then you want to build back what's been lost. It's a little bit like, you know, if you've had a heart attack and you've got, you've got clogged vessels, you want to get rid of that clog. And then, but then you also want to strengthen your cardiovascular musculature. So you, we mm-hmm. want to build back the synapses that have been lost. And that involves trophic support, things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor and appropriate hormones when needed. Uh, and uh, and appropriate nutrition, uh, so these things are all critical. And again, the armamentarium, you know, has gotten bigger and bigger. There are things like mm-hmm. intranasal trophic factors and peptides that can actually be, you know, useful used in the appropriate way at the appropriate time. So over time, what happens is you can slowly remove that amyloid, but you have to remember the amyloid gets stored in these plaques. The plaques themselves are not major problems. They simply indicate mm. you've been making amyloid, so it's a good biomarker. But the, the plaques aren't the problem. The problem is the stuff that's when the plaques say, ah, okay, there's a problem now, I'm gonna send out. It's just like soldiers in a fort. As long as they're in the fort, they're not gonna be killing people. Now, when you've got some an invading organism, you open the doors and out come the soldiers and they start shooting and bombing and all that sort of stuff. So it's those oligomers. It's These are the small mm-hmm. groups of the amyloid molecules. They're the ones that kill the bacteria, but also unfortunately cause damage to the synapses, cause you now to, to pull back. And you again, you can follow this beautiful biochemistry. They cause your tau to be phosphorylated. Your tau is a molecule that sits on the microtubules and stabilizes them. So now you've got the ability to make and store new connections. If you want to pull that back because things are bad, uh uh-oh, we're going to retreat, you simply phosphorylate your tau, it pops off, and now you collapse your neurite. Well, what do you see in Alzheimer's? Mm. A ton of phosphotau. And that's why the signals being sent out, pull back, pull back. So what we'd like to do is show that your phosphotau is coming down, which is actually we're in the middle of doing that right now with the clinical trial we're doing. Uh, And so the idea then is it's not so much getting rid of the amyloid, it's getting rid of the bad amyloid. And there are things you can do. Curcumin is a good, uh, good way to do that. It has an anti-inflammatory effect, of course, but it also binds both to the the amyloid and the tau, helps you to remove it. So that's a good way to go. Um, Ashwagandha turns out to be helpful. Now, these things are slow removals over time. The most important thing is don't keep building it up. Don't keep exposing yourself to the stuff that's gonna be, and slowly over time, it should improve. The idea of ripping it out uh, quickly and doing that as a monotherapy it just makes absolutely no sense if you understand what this disease is. And so, yeah. I, again, I, I believe that in the long run, what we'll be doing is using those drugs in, to begin with in microdoses just to slowly, slowly remove this stuff over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was brought up with this notion that um, after age 25, your brain was sort of in this slow limp of a decline that you basically couldn't build any more connections or neurons, et cetera. Obviously with the emerging fields of neuroplasticity, much of that old paradigm has been, been upended though, you know, fair enough. 
your brain's probably a little more plastic when you're younger. But sure. there are things that we uh, can do not to only maintain uh, neural function, but actually to grow new neurons, neurogenesis. Um, and I wonder if you could um, address briefly uh, exercise and, and perhaps even sauna, because that's a yeah. big hot topic these days as a kind of exercise mimicking technique yeah. um, uh, and their roles in um, activating B BDNF and et cetera. Are those things, are those protocols that you would recommend for uh, maintaining good neural function? Absolutely. In fact, we use both of those. And I would say that they are complementary because the sauna is going to give you the sweating. I mean, that's the common theme. They're going to give you the sweating and it's going to help you detox, but it's not going to help your insulin resistance, for example. So exercise, again, the idea is you want to get that perfusion, you want to get that oxygenation to the far reaches of the brain. You don't want to be sending signals that, hey, we can't really support you. You're going to have to downsize a bit. And so uh, exercise, both strength training, which has its own set of things, you know, uh, it's, it's going to help you in signaling to the brain uh, with PGC. It's going to help you with uh, ketosis. It's going to help you with uh, insulin resistance. You've got, you know, insulin mm -hmm. uh, receptors on muscle. So all these things can be helpful, but you also want to look at aerobic. And I have to say my favorite, which I believe is, is really the best for Alzheimer's, is EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. You get the mm. combined benefit of you're improving your blood flow, you're getting the oxygenation, and now because you're doing it with oxygen, you're now perfusing and oxygenating areas of your brain much better than you were before. Now again, I understand a lot of people like HBOT instead. Uh, the only issue there is you're not actively exercising. So I love the combination uh, uh, that, that is used in EWOT. Um, some people also might like these katsu bands, which are you know, restriction bands, um, which again mm -hmm. gives you more bang for your buck. A lot of people who are somewhat frail like those bands because you do less exercise and even the Olympics athletes, uh, some use them. So you can use it whether you're frail or not, but it tends to be particularly helpful for people who can't exercise too much, but they wanna get more bang for their buck check out resistance bands. Uh, and so those are, those are helpful. So exercise, and some people have argued it's the most important thing. Um, I think it depends on what's causing your problem. You know, uh, and again, I would go back to the fact that uh, all these things that we're talking about to reduce the risk for Alzheimer's and to reverse cognitive decline also improve normal cognition. So, you know, right. a lot of us are sitting at work the, in the morning, tired, having trouble kind of getting around, getting our heads around what we're supposed to do. Um, this is, you know, these are things that can be improved. Your focus can be improved, things like that. Um, your processing speed can be improved. And um, you, you mentioned uh, things going downhill at 25. Well, uh, Professor Mike Mersnick, uh, who is the father of brain training, uh, won the Kavli Prize, uh, just a, a wonderful and brilliant guy. Uh, pointed out that you know you have neuroplasticity ongoing for your entire life, so you've yeah. got this amazing plastic brain, uh, and and definitely you know optimize it, and and your your chance of having problems uh, will go down dramatically. Yeah. So for anyone that is a doubter out there, um, 
and, and might say, well, hey, kind of these lifestyle protocols are all well and good, but you know, this pathology is so deep and you need to yeah. find the right pharmaceutical to deal with it, et cetera. Uh, you know, you, I wonder if you could actually share with us some of the results sure. that you're actually seeing in clinical environments with these lifestyle interventions uh, in relation to the prevention and reversal of uh, symptoms related to dementia. Yeah, and so first of all, I would say just read the papers. These these papers are freely available online. Uh, we published yeah. our clinical trial in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease uh, last year. Uh, you can also read we had 100 cases of documented improvement, which we published back in uh, 2018. Uh, we published the yeah, first. I love the, these case. These hundred case studies are incredible. Uh, I just got a chance to like poke around at some of them, and it's just like it's, yeah. it's so fantastic. Well, it's all yeah. really anyone needs. There. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the, the people will keep saying, "Well, we want this, we want that." Okay, we know we're we're doing a larger randomized controlled trial now. Fine. Uh, but just dramatic, you know, again, when you get at, when you understand the underlying problem and you address mm -hmm. it, you can get sustainable results. And I think that's the most important thing of all. These people didn't just bump up. They actually have sustained their improvement. We've got people over a decade now. So I'll, I'll tell you one example, Sally, and she wrote her, uh, she wrote her story in The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Um, and I talked. Mm -hmm. I talked a little bit about her stuff before. the The earlier book was the was the end of Alzheimer's, and then the second one was the end of Alzheimer's program, and then the third one was first survivors of Alzheimer's. So Sally uh, is a was a professor actually, uh, and she started having clear problems, um, and she actually realized after a while that her problems dated back again, just as you would think. Uh, she, on looking back at it, she realized this had started in her forties or fifties but she was uh, emailing me um, in her late 60s. And at that time, she started having problems. She forgot to pick up her children, her grandchildren, that is. Um, she was having trouble showing them how to make a gingerbread man. Uh, she just couldn't put things together. This is a so-called executive dysfunction. Uh, and uh, so she went to a doctor who uh, sent her to a neurologist who said, you have early Alzheimer's. They did a PET scan. Uh, and she had amyloid collection. She had a single copy of ApoE4. So a very typical case of someone with Alzheimer's, in her case, with some non-amnestic presentation as well as amnestic presentation. So they recommended to her at the time, go on one of these drug trials. Each time she got the injection for the uh, anti-amyloid antibodies, she got worse, not better. So after eight injections, so each month, what happened, we've seen this a number of times where people will get worse and then they'll slowly kind of fight their way back to where they were and then they'll get worse again. So that happened to her eight times and then she finally said, forget it, you know, things are, are not good here. Her MOCA score, which is goes zero to 30, and most people should be up 29 or 30, hers was 24. Again, for someone who is a professor, um, that's quite low for her. So she had a significant MCI. She hadn't yet gotten to the dementia stage. She could still take care of herself, but she was having significant problems and the scores were showing it. The amyloid test was showing it. Uh, and it was clear that she had Alzheimer's disease in that third stage, uh, MCI. So she then contacted me and we said, well, you know, I said, look, let's find out what's driving this problem. 
she turned out to have a number of things. Um, interestingly, beginning with mycotoxins, she had quite an exposure to these mm -hmm. mycotoxins, but she also had other problems. Um, and we started addressing those. Actually, I worked with her physician to get these things addressed. She went from a score of 24 to a perfect score of 30. Uh, she remembers to pick up her daughters together. In fact, she's part of a documentary now, which is called Memories for Life, Reversing Alzheimer's. Um, it's coming out from, uh, from NHK, uh, which is essentially the Japanese CNN. Uh, and so uh, she's in there talking about her story. Her granddaughter said, oh, my gosh, you know, grandma's back. Uh, she's, you know, mm -hmm. she's doing what she's doing. And I, and I want to point out, it's not just lifestyle, but you don't want to leave lifestyle out. It's an important piece of this. You know, you are, again, aligning yourself with what your genetics are telling you is evolutionarily appropriate. And that's the way you're going right. to get the best outcomes. And she has continued. She's now seven years on this. And, you know, in the drug trials, you'll never hear about someone who's sustained improvements for seven years. And in fact, right. a paper a couple of years ago showed that the people who went on Aricept or Namenda, which are the two typical drugs for Alzheimer's, at five years later, they were actually doing worse than the control group worse than mm. the ones who didn't go on it, which is a bit scary. So these things don't give you sustained improvement. And whereas the approach we're taking has given people sustained improvement repeatedly. Now, as with so many other people, she found out after a while that, oh, wait a minute, I'm, a slip, I'm slip sliding just a little bit. Okay, so we went back and said, okay, what's missing? She had been re-exposed to some of these mycotoxins. Okay, so now we're dealing with this. And again, it's important to remember, this doesn't come on for no reason. You know, there, mm -hmm. the, there's a reason for this, and typically multiple reasons. And so this old idea, well, you just you call it Alzheimer's, and, and then you, you say, we don't know what causes it. There's nothing to do that you can help it. That's outdated. Um, I always tell people, don't end a sentence with Alzheimer's and then a period. Alzheimer's due to what? And in right. her case, we identified the things that are causing it, and we've been very successful. Um, in reversing it. Yeah. Well, this is the future of medicine and, and really the future is now, um, yeah. is, uh, is understanding that, that the old school sort of reductionist principles sort of by the analogy of billiard balls or something yeah. of Newtonian physics or something that just can, does not apply to, um, to how, physiology functions i mean the etiologies of these diseases particularly alzheimer's are are myriad and and they require this approach which is both bioindividual and precision oriented and mm -hmm. uh and that's you know again that just provides so much agency but you also have to do the work you know yeah. um and um and it's just unbelievably fascinating and, and and i gotta say that you know your work is just couldn't be more on time because i mean what are we talking about i think you mentioned 45 or 50 million americans yeah. i mean our population is what 320 million right so we're talking about 50 million americans one in every six or seven right um that are going to have this diagnosis and you know and and as you've pointed out it it, it doesn't just debilitate the person who is suffering from the disease but the community of caregivers and the societal expense i mean it is it is really 
um, overwhelming. And I think, yeah. you know, your work um, is so admirable. And so is your persistence, um, because I can only imagine how difficult it must be to wake up day after day uh, and try to get this message across when you're going up a lot against a lot of uh, uh, entrenched interests. Um, you know, the, the scientific community doesn't always welcome new science and, and, and that process is so slow. So I really do admire your, your resilience and, and your grace through that process. And, and you're obviously giving people a tremendous amount of hope and agency. So I'm very, very grateful for your work. Thanks very much. Where, where can people keep abreast uh, of what you've got going on? You can follow on uh, Facebook, Dr. Dale Bredesen, uh, on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, uh, the usual sort of places. Uh, and then uh, I would mention um, there are new trial, if people are interested in a clinical trial, um, it is called the Evanthea trial, E-V-A-N-T-H-E-A. -E so it's Evanthea uh, Dementia Reversal Trial. And you can see, and it's at six sites. I'm mm -hmm. really honored to be working with six absolutely fantastic physicians. Uh, so this is coming out of uh, Hollywood, Florida with Craig Tanio, uh, uh, David Hasse in uh, Nashville, uh, Nate Bergman uh, in uh, Cleveland, uh, and then uh, Christine Burke in Sacramento, Dr. Ann Hathaway uh, here in Marin, just north of San Francisco, and Dr. Kat Toops, who's over in the East Bay. Uh, just absolutely fantastic functional medicine physicians and all getting very, very good results with people with cognitive decline. So we're starting that and it's been supported uh, by, uh, by uh, the Four Winds Foundation and, and uh, Diana Merriam, uh, who, uh, who is an amazing person who is interested in reducing the burden of uh, the global burden of dementia. So I'm just uh, truly mm -hmm. grateful to Diana and, and her family uh, for their support of this important trial. Well, Dr. Dale Bredesen, thank you. It's been such a treat and uh, to be continued because I, I can't imagine that this issue is going to go away overnight. So um, thank you for all your work and all your wisdom. Thanks. A lot more stuff to do. Let's all work and reduce the global burden of dementia. I, I, I would love to see this. I mean, it's just as everyone knows, just about everybody knows someone out there who has developed dementia and it's a horrible thing to see. And so to the idea that we could really reduce this to almost nothing, um, and, and you know, we have the means to do that now, um, is so compelling. So thanks again for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. I urge you to check out his books on Alzheimer's, including The End of Alzheimer's, The First Program to Prevent and Reverse Cognitive Decline, and The End of Alzheimer's Program. Uh, dementia is a devastating disease, but we are not without agency. We can adopt the protocols that align us with our adaptive mechanisms and lead to health. This disease, as I've said, is progressive. It takes hold slowly over decades, so it's never too early to adopt the praxis of health, a low-carb, whole foods diet, an intelligent fasting and exercise regime, sleep, and stress management can go a long way 
to a healthy body and a healthy brain. Okay, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So the best way to support us, if you're inclined to do so, is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top doctors and authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Savannah Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.